and in prayer, shall we? Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for your word. We want to thank you for this day. We want to thank you that your word reminds us that your mercies are new to us today. We want to thank you that your word reminds us that you come to us like spring rains. And as the spring rains come in the physical, we ask that you might come through your word, bringing new life, bringing new growth through your word, through your grace. So give us attentive hearts, give us listening ears now. We pray in your name, Jesus, and for your glory. Amen. Well, for those of you who have recently joined us, uh, just to update you, we're on a bit of a journey through the Gospel of Luke. And uh, last week, for those of you who are here, we were in Luke 15, and we heard about the parable of the man and the two sons. And every preacher loves to preach in Luke 15. I could preach for 55 years in Luke 15, like some scholars uh, have known to do, but Jesus doesn't give me the, uh, the opportunity to stay there. He asked me to teach the whole counsel of God. And so this morning, we are in Luke 16 and 17, where Jesus moves from welcome to warning. He moves from welcome to warning, teaching us about life beyond the grave. And within this teaching comes some very stern warnings indeed. This morning, I want to explore two questions. I want to ask the question, what happens when we die? And what happens at the end of time? What happens when we die? And what happens at the end of time? And the first question, I'm going to use the parable that Jesus teaches in Luke 16. We haven't heard it yet, but we're going to hear it in a moment. And it's the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. Now, having recently farewelled a loved member in my family, this first question, what happens when we die, is very, very close to my heart. But I think it should be close to all of our hearts. So turn with me, if you haven't already, to Luke, and I'm reading in chapter 16 from verse 19. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his sides. Last weekend, uh, I was talking to Gabe and Emma and we were reflecting on how poorly Western culture does in the process of grieving when people die and how we process our grief. And Emma is going to be doing some summer studies to reflect uh, on that very question, how we in our culture uh, deal with death and dying. And we tend to, in our Western culture, we tend to privatise our grief. We bring in the professionals, we bring in the professional funeral directors, we take the body away quickly, we dress the body in their best, and we privatise our grief. Now this is perhaps a reasonable response. 
death is our enemy. Death is painful. But as followers of Jesus, we need to wrestle with his teaching on what happens when we die and what is his purpose for us beyond the grave. Two things we learn in Scripture that are certain. According to Scripture, we will die and Christ will return. And how we prepare for both of these has an eternal bearing on our lives and where we will spend eternity. And so it is eternity that is at stake when we reflect on this parable. The rich man and Lazarus both die, but they end up in two very different places. Lazarus ends up, as the text says, beside Abraham's sides, beside Abraham's bosom. The rich man ends in Hades or hell in the realm of torment, in the realm of death. Now, it's significant in all of Jesus' parables, there is only one name, one character whose name is given, and it's in this parable. This is the only parable that Jesus shares where the character is actually named. So we can take from that that this name is significant. Lazarus means literally the one whom God helps. The one whom God helps. The rich man offers Lazarus no help in his lifetime, the text says. It's the dogs who come and comfort him, and when he dies, the angels carry him away and take him to Abraham's side. The rich man has given Lazarus no help in his lifetime. So the angels carry Lazarus to Abraham's side, a place of blessing, reclining at the bosom of the great Jewish patriarch, with echoes of John 13, where John, the apostle, leans on his master, leans on Jesus' sides. Echoes of paradise that Jesus promised to the repentant thief on the cross at Calvary, but not so the rich man. The rich man is buried, and he ends in Hades or hell in torment. Look again at verse 23. In Hades, where he was in torment, he looked up and he saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. And so he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things. While Lazarus received bad things, but now he is comforted here, and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been set in place, so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. Now, one of the unmissable truths that Jesus is articulating in this parable is this chasm the separation between heaven and between hell. There is no crossing over, the text says. The rich man now becomes the beggar, and he is begging, and their roles have been reversed. He begs for Abraham to send Lazarus to go and warn his five brothers so they might avoid the place of torment. Abraham is direct and clear in verse 29. Abraham replied, "'They have Moses.'" And the prophets, let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, 
But if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. He said to him, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. The rich man contradicts Abraham. And Abraham makes it quite clear that if they don't listen to Scripture, they won't be swayed by a miracle, even someone being raised from the dead. And so this great chasm between Abraham's side and between Hades. The Old Testament is clear about the requirements of the law, the justice that was required of God. And reading in Zechariah 7, verses 9 and 10, we read the following. This is what the Lord Almighty said. Administer true justice, show mercy and compassion to one another. Do not oppress the widow or the fatherless, the foreigner or the poor. Do not plot evil against each other. It would appear that the rich man has shown none of this. He has shown no mercy. He has shown no compassion. He had no regard for the poor beggar Lazarus at his door. Don't oppress the widow or the fatherless, the foreigner or the poor. Do not plot evil against each other. At some point, all of us have to face the question, what happens when we die? What happens when we die? What is God's plan for us when we die? The secular narrative, of course, contradicts Jesus' teaching. The secular narrative that Western culture has employed over the last 100 years is that death is the end. We've imbibed the materialist worldview that says death is the end, and so we need not worry. Jesus contradicts that worldview very, very directly in this parable. You see, if our thesis as a Western culture is wrong, as Jesus clearly teaches it is, we need to be ready for a dreadful shock. The Pharisees are asking a similar question. Not what happens when we die. In chapter 17, the Pharisees ask, when will the kingdom come? And so we turn to chapter 17, and in verse 20, we read the following. Once on being asked by the Pharisees, when the kingdom of God would come, Jesus replied, the coming of the kingdom of God is not something that can be observed, nor will people say, here it is or there it is, because the kingdom of God is in your midst. In other words, Jesus is saying, the one who is speaking himself is ushering the kingdom of God in your midst. And then he goes on to instruct the disciples in the following verses. Then he said to the disciples, The time is coming when you will long to see one of the days of the Son of Man, but you won't see it. People will tell you, there he is, or here he is. Don't go running after them. For the Son of Man in his day will be like lightning, which flashes and lights up the sky from one end to the other. But first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. In response to the Pharisees' question and then teaching the disciples, he goes on to explain the suffering that he must go through. He goes on to talk about the suffering that he would endure on the cross of Christ, predicting his own death on the cross to appease the wrath of God for all wickedness. Jesus foreshadows how he will take the coming judgment of sin. But then he points the disciples and he points to you and I to the end of time. Look at verse 26. 
Just as it was in the days of Noah, so also it will be in the days of the Son of Man. People were eating and drinking, marrying and being given in marriage up until the day Noah entered the ark, and then the flood came and destroyed them all. It was the same in the days of Lot. People were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building, but the day Lot left Sodom, fire and sulfur rained down from in heaven and destroyed them all. It will be just like this on the day the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, no one who is on the housetop with possessions inside should go down to get them. Likewise, no one in the field should go back for anything. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever tries to keep their life will lose it. Whoever loses their life will preserve it. I tell you, on that night, two people will be in one bed. One will be taken, the other left. Two women will be grinding grain together. One will be taken and the other will be left. Christ will return. The unmistakable teaching of Scripture. Christ will return. And it will be unmissable. It'll be like a lightning storm. Lightning from one end of the sky to the other. You will not miss when Christ returns. So you don't need to go wandering around. Is Christ here? Has he been here? You will see. The whole world will know when Christ returns and a holy judgment will fall on all people, just as in the days of Noah and just as in the days of Lot. A holy judgment will fall on this world. The book of Revelation makes it clear that death is not the end. For those in paradise, like Lazarus here, the righteous who have trusted in Christ will be resurrected to reign with him. The book of life will be opened, and the dead are judged before the great white throne of God. And then John states the following in Revelation 20, verse 14. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. Anyone whose names was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. In the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus uses imagery of this time of judgment with separating the sheep and the goats. The righteous who have received God's justice by faith in Christ have themselves been just in serving the hungry, the thirsty, the stranger. They go, Jesus says, to enter into eternal life. But those who reject God's justice, those who reject His Son, and themselves are not just to their neighbor, will go away to eternal judgment. These are sobering words. These are sobering words of our Lord Jesus that we need to listen to. On the 8th of July in 1741 in Northampton, Massachusetts, Jonathan Edwards preached a sermon based on Hebrews 10.31, and it was called, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God's. It was a highly influential sermon. He enjoyed preaching it so much, he preached it twice. It was, as historians have reflected, a catalyst for starting off what has now been called the Great Awakening. That message emphasized God's wrath upon unbelievers after death to a very real, horrific, and fiery hell. This week in our family devotions at home, Michael led our family devotions on Monday and it was from the very same text that Jonathan Edwards preached, Hebrews 10.31. He wasn't naming it uh, 
sinners in the hands of an angry God, but it was influential for our households. Hebrews 10.31 says the following, It is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living gods. Dreadful in the sense of being full of dread. It is a dreadful thing to fall in the hands of an angry gods. The preceding verses, we can see how dreadful it is. In verse 26 in Hebrews 10, we read this. If we deliberately keep on sinning after we have received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sins is left but only a fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. Anyone who rejected the law of Moses died without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much more severely do you think someone deserves to be punished who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, who has treated as an unholy thing the blood of the covenant that sanctified them and who has insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, it is mine to avenge, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. Who can stand before a holy God? We know we are all so compromised. Who can stand before a holy God? This week, reflecting on yet another mega pastor who has stumbled, Kerry Newhoff said the following, He said, compromise, it all starts with compromise. You look at a little pawn once, okay, twice, okay, a little more, and soon it's a habit. You flirted with him once, then again, and then you were emotionally entangled. You started justifying your impulsiveness. If they only knew the pressure I'm under, then they would say it and see it this way too, you told yourself. You swore a bit because... You think that swearing a little doesn't mean you're not a Christian, but now your internal dialogue is so foul. You blew up in anger at the meeting the other day, but man, surely they deserved it. And before you know it, Kerry writes, a thousand little compromises left you compromised. All of us are compromised. All of us are compromised. But the writer to Hebrews shares with us the basis of hope and assurance. Earlier in chapter 10, he reflects on the old covenant and the sacrificial law that was a shadow of the perfect obedient sacrifice of Christ. Hebrews 10, 14, we read the following. For by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. The one sacrifice is the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. The Holy Spirit also testifies to us about this. First, he says, this is the covenant I will make with them. After that time, says the Lord, I will put my laws in their hearts. I will write them on their minds. And then he adds, their sins and their lawless acts I will remember no more. And where those have been forgiven, sacrifice for sin is no longer necessary. This is the new covenant that Jeremiah spoke of where God gives us a new heart. He writes his laws on our own hearts. A new covenant. God's spirit is bestowed upon you. You are made alive, truly alive, and your sins are forgiven. The writer to Hebrews goes on to say, Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, open for us through the curtain that is his body, 
And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water, let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess and he who promised is faithful. We are united in Christ. The moment we yield our life in faith, we are united with Christ. Our sins are forgiven and we can joyfully enter into the throne of grace with confidence. What a gift. What a gift. That's the gospel of grace. When you accept that by faith, you have assurance that your eternal destiny is secure. When you die... You'll be first ushered into the presence of Abraham and finally ushered in with Christ into the new heavens and new earth, redeemed, restored, and perfect in righteousness. The writer to Hebrews goes on to say in verse 35, So do not throw away your confidence. It will be richly rewarded. You need to persevere so that when you have done the will of God, you will receive what he has promised for you. In just a little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. The writer goes on to say, and, but by my faith righteousness, one will live by faith, and I take no pleasure in the one who shrinks back. But we do not belong to those who shrink back and are destroyed, but to those who have faith and are saved. Those who have faith in Christ Jesus will be saved. Those who do not will be lost for eternity. Many of you would have seen the news this week about the promised vaccine of COVID-19. And the media has been breathless about the hope that this holds out to humanity. The ODT writing online said it is a great day for humanity and it is good news. It is good news that the vaccine has been discovered. It may well extend the lives of many people, but for many of them, of course, for all of us, the real virus that will ultimately kill us is not called COVID, it's called unbelief. The real threat to humanity is the virus called unbelief. John 3:17. for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. We can live physically healthy lives, perhaps till we're 70, till we're 80, till we're 90, free from major illnesses, but we can still end up in Hades where the rich man ended. I want to finish by sharing the truthful, hopeful news that has three threads. Firstly, in Christ you are accepted. In Christ you are accepted, eternally accepted. The moment you place your trust in his life, death, and resurrection, the moment you do that, you are accepted and your eternal destiny is secure. Secondly, in Christ, you are delivered from the primary virus that will destroy you. It is sin. In Christ, the moment you yield your life to him, you are delivered from sin. And your sins 
are forgotten by God as far as the east is from the west. And thirdly, you need never be alone. You need never be alone in this life and in eternity. You need never be alone. The moment you place your life in Christ, you, the moment you place your faith in Christ, God's promise is that He will pour His Spirit into you, His very presence will dwell within you. You need never be alone. There's a saying that the road to hell is paved with good intentions. The road to paradise is narrow, but it is open. It is open through the Lord Jesus Christ. My plea to you today is that you set out on this road before it's too late, that you come to Christ, that you focus your eyes on the author and the perfecter of your faith, the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's bow our heads and our hearts in prayer. Father, as we come to this word, this sobering word, that the Lord Jesus shared all those years ago, that the Lord Jesus shares with us now, in this moment in eternity, we want to say thank you for his teaching for revealing to us your eternal purposes and plans that we might be with you in eternity. But as we reflect on the parable of the rich man and of Lazarus, we do so with fear and trembling, acknowledging that the stakes are eternally high, eternally high. And so I pray for my brothers and sisters, for anyone who has not yet yielded their life to you, would you now grant them the gift of saving faith, that they might turn away from the world, the distractions of the world and their sin, that they might turn to you and receive your grace. Lord, for those of us who might have some degree of uncertainty, a lack of assurance, Lord, would you remind us from the letter to Hebrews again that we can enter in with confidence, not because of what we've done, not because of who we are, but because of who you are and your faithfulness in sending the Lord Jesus. Lord, grant us that assurance. Grant us that assurance this morning that we can enter into your presence boldly through the blood of Christ. And Lord, as we reflect on this as a church, as we reflect on what happens beyond the grave, on what happens in eternity and what will ultimately happen when you return. Lord, give us a boldness. Give us a conviction to go and share this gospel, this gospel of grace that you did not come into the world to condemn the world. You came into the world to save the world. Use us, we pray. Use us for your glory. May we know without any doubt where we will spend eternity. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.